Hello and welcome to the first edition of Wellbeing for 2007. I'm Iris Nichols. My guest today is Dr. Martin Cohen. He's a researcher for the Hunter Medical Research Institute, a staff specialist at the James Fletcher Hospital and a conjoint lecturer at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Cohen is talking to me about what is the use of cannabis doing to the mental health of our younger generations. Dr. Cohen, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Dr. Cohen, particularly in the swinging 60s and 70s, cannabis or marijuana was almost the in thing to do. When was it first realised that in fact was and is a dangerous drug? Well, in the late 80s, there was a, a researcher who looked at the rates of mental illness in people who were being conscripted into the Swedish army and noticed an association between the rates of cannabis use in these young uh, adolescents who were being recruited into the army and their subsequent risk of developing psychotic disorder. And so this first study actually showed that there was a dose-response relationship between the use of cannabis and the subsequent uh, risk of developing psychotic symptoms. So if that was in Sweden, I think you said? Yes. How long did it take for the rest of the world to catch up on that? Well... In the late 80s and then again into the early 90s, uh, researchers discovered a, our body's own cannabis-producing system called the endogenous cannabinoid system. And uh, this is the beginning of our understanding in terms of medical research and medical science that uh, the active ingredients in cannabis actually affect the central nervous system. And from that early work, we began to discover how uh, the chemicals in cannabis actually modulate or affect brain activity. At the same time, internationally, there was a great deal of interest in uh, different research institutions because clinically, uh, people were actually seeing that cannabis use was associated with uh, increased rates of psychotic symptoms in young people who had no history of mental health problems, and also that people with schizophrenia were being readmitted to hospital more often if they used cannabis. And it was so, so it was out of these early works that uh, the current state of play with, with regards to the links between cannabis use and mental health problems um, began. And how long have you been working on, on the effects of cannabis on the human brain? Well, I've been working in the area for about five years now. Uh, but in terms of research in Australia, Australia actually has quite a, a strong history of looking at the effects of cannabis use on, on mental health. As I see it, smoking cigarettes is a boost to the nicotine in the body and the increase of the feeling of well-being. Is it the same idea with cannabis? And what's the difference in the effect on the body? And can cannabis lead to cancer? Okay. What's known is that um, cannabis actually contains a whole range of compounds. It contains what we call cannabinoids, which affect the brain and the body. Um, with regards to the brain, what cannab cannabinoids actually do is they change the chemical balance of the range of neurotransmitters that we require for controlling our attention, our concentration, and our memory functions. As you mentioned, cigarettes have nicotine in them, and they actually uh, nicotines actually do affect uh, the brain in, in a, a slightly different way. In that, nicotine actually en enhances some of the memory functions um, of the brain. However, cannabis and nicotine have a, a very similar deleterious effect on physical well-being. In that, if you smoke cannabis or if you smoke uh, nicotine, it actually is quite bad for the lungs. And we know there's association between cigarette smoking and uh, cancers, and there is an association between smoking cannabis and uh, lung cancers. And in fact, smoking cannabis um, introduces very high levels of tars and other toxins into the body. You don't hear much about the, the effect of cannabis and the effect on the lungs, though, do you? I mean, usually 
you see advertisements and things for nicotine, don't smoke, etc. But you don't hear very much about the link between cannabis and, and lungs and disorders and all of those things. No, well, typically cannabis, cannabis has been thought to be a, a benign substance mm. and as such... Uh, the introduction of um, the concerns about the effects of cannabis on mental health and physical well-being has only begun to take hold in the consciousness of um, the general public only recently. Do the changes happen fairly quickly or, or is it something that sort of builds up over the years and can be quite some time before they show themselves? Well, the effects are actually variable. Um, we're beginning to understand that people who start to use cannabis early on in life are at a much greater risk of developing depressive disorders and psychotic disorders as well as anxiety disorders. With regards to how long it actually takes, that's actually variable as well and actually depends on a person's genetic profile. Oh, I see. So people find comfort, if you like, for want of a better word, by using cannabis in the same way as perhaps alcoholics use alcohol as their, their comfort zone? Well, there's no doubt that cannabis use is a recreational drug and it's been used uh, historically you know, for the in its induction of euphoria and relaxation mm -hmm. and altered time sense and perceptions. The issue around uh, the cannabis that's actually being smoked nowadays is that, first of all, it's actually stronger than the traditional bushweed that was mm -hmm. being smoked in the 60s. But I think probably more importantly, some European research is showing that the balance of chemicals in these hydroponically grown cannabinoids is different from that which was grown in the 1960s. And it might be this altered chemical balance in the drug itself that's predisposing people to a higher risk of developing mental health problems. Would somebody need to smoke on a regular basis of, say, once or twice a day for the damage to happen? Or would it have the same effect if they were only doing it socially once a week or periodically? Yeah. In essence, if you think about um, cannabis as uh, introducing water into your petrol tank in your car, mm. okay, most people would think that that's probably not the most sensible thing to be doing. Now, um, depending on how much water you introduce into your petrol tank and how your engine functions, in other words, your genetic profile and mm. the makeup of your brain, mm. the outcome of that exposure will vary. There's a gene called the COMPT gene, catecholomethyltransferase, which breaks down a chemical called dopamine. Now, dopamine is a neurochemical, a brain chemical, that's really important for your brain to be able to pay attention, to concentrate, to remember things, and to integrate the information that you get from your senses. If you have a mixed type of this gene, uh, research is suggesting that you, and you use cannabis, research is suggesting that you have a tenfold increased risk of developing psychotic symptoms. So some people with a genetic risk factor might use cannabis once or twice and feel paranoid, feel uneasy and never use cannabis again. Whereas other people who might start using cannabis early on in adolescence and keep using for many years may not actually experience the deleterious effects of cannabis. The risk for the general population is that you actually don't know your genetic profile and so you're in, a, in essence you're, you're taking a gamble when you're smoking cannabis. It's a bit like Russian roulette, isn't it? It is, in a sense, yes. Mm. Mm. If there's damage done as the result of, of smoking the drug, is it irreversible? Okay, there's 
different kinds of uh, effects that cannabis has. The first is in terms of your risk of uh, affecting your uh, thinking functions. And there's good research to suggest that the longer you use cannabis for, the greater the likelihood that you'll affect those memory functions. If you stop using cannabis, there is evidence to suggest that in the vast majority of people, most of those deficits may be reversible. But there's other research to suggest that if you keep using cannabis and then stop using, your brain actually functions in a different way. And brain imaging studies are showing that cannabis use might actually rewire that the brain works. So in basically, once the damage is done, there is a fairly good risk of it being done sort of thing, and that's it. And persisting, yes. Mm. On Wellbeing Today, I'm talking with Dr. Martin Cohen, researcher for the Hunter Medical Research Institute. I'd like to ask you a bit about schizophrenia. It's a word that most of us probably know, but don't really understand what it is. What is it? Can I start off by telling you what it isn't? Schizophrenia isn't about uh, a split personality, and it's not about people being uh, a good person or a bad person. Schizophrenia is a brain disorder. Um, it's got in part a genetic component and in part an environmental component. It's characterized by sets of symptoms and there's three symptom clusters. The first is what we've all heard about the hallucinations and delusions. So hallucinations are aberrant perceptual experiences such as hearing voices or seeing things or feeling things when there's actually no external stimulus. Delusions are fixed false beliefs outside of the sociocultural norms that really influence the way a person behaves. And the second symptom cluster are the cognitive symptoms, and people with schizophrenia over time lose their ability to think clearly, to do the everyday tasks like planning their shopping lists and cooking a meal. So there's actual degradation of the frontal parts of the brain that control these functions. And the third symptom cluster is called the negative symptom cluster, and this relates to a person's social self. Unfortunately, schizophrenia as a disorder usually starts in adolescence and progresses uh, over time. And what actually happens is that uh, adolescents actually lose their sense of self because their life is so engulfed by these positive hallucinations and delusions and their impairments in their cognitive functioning that their personality changes. They become less engaged in our social world and they lose motivation uh, to progress themselves academically or in the career or socially. Can we take those sort of one at a time? You mentioned about them seeing things and hearing things. Mm. Do they actually hear voices in the same way as, say, our listeners will be hearing this program? Absolutely, yes. Mm. So auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations are kind of a product of a a brain malfunction. For most healthy people, when they uh, hear voices, it's usually because it comes from another person in the room. But if you think about schizophrenia as a brain disorder and uh, as the disease progresses, what happens is that certain brain regions uh, begin begin to malfunction and they begin to produce a noise in a sense. And that noise can be expressed in any of the senses. So people can get hallucinations in any of the senses. So hearing, seeing, feeling, smelling, tasting. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, And the person actually believes that those hallucinations are there and for that person they're as real as hearing a voice of another person in the room. You then mentioned about people not being able to do everyday things about making out shopping lists and cooking and all of those things. Is that a gradual thing or is that just something they have never been able to do? That's generally a, a gradual thing. What happens with schizophrenia is there's a prodrome and this 
basically is a period where the disease starts to take hold. We know from brain imaging studies that people are actually changing uh, the way their brain functions with the disease process and there's a change in both their brain tissue density and also their brain tissue function. And as this sweep of uh, disease takes over their frontal lobes, which is the social part of the brain, the part of the brain that helps us organize ourselves, think clearly, and um, think about other people in a social context, they become less motivated, they become less able to plan, and they become less engaged socially. And when they become less social, do they end up sort of almost sitting in a corner and, and just shutting the rest of the world out? Well, yes. For people with schizophrenia who are hearing voices or experiencing disturbances in one of uh, their senses, it's very difficult for them to separate out what is real from what isn't real. And as a consequence of that, when they're in a social context, for example, if they're in a shopping centre and they're hearing voices and they're turning around all the time, I guess they, they can actually gauge that this isn't socially uh, what everyone else is doing and they feel unsafe uh, and tend to retreat back, back to a familiar environment, which might be their room where they can sit and feel safe. And is there a quick, in as much that you can rescue them at that particular time and then treat them, is there a quick treatment that you can give them at that particular point? Mm -hmm. Well, we do have medications which can ameliorate the psychotic symptoms, the hallucinations and delusions in m many of the patients with schizophrenia. Um, internationally, uh, there's a very strong movement to recognise the early symptoms of schizophrenia and offer treatment to people who are developing schizophrenia as early as possible. For example, in the Hunter, we have something called the Psychological Assistance Service, which is an early psychosis service whereby we do a whole range of neuropsychological tests and work with somebody and their families uh, to understand that they're actually developing a disorder and to prescribe very low doses of medication to try and help manage those hallucinations, so those positive symptoms. And we also work with them to try and uh, cut out uh, substance use from their um, everyday routine because we know that all substances <coughs> decrease the effectiveness of the medication and increase the likelihood that their symptoms will continue to get worse. Would their family or partners, would they recognise that a person is, is starting to have problems with schizophrenia? Well, because... I mean, does it come on gradually or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's different forms of schizophrenia. Um, there's, some, there's one form that will actually come on fairly suddenly with very florid um, hallucinations and delusions and disorganised thinking. Um, and there's other forms which comes, comes on in a, a much more insidious and slow-onset way. And because the disease usually starts in adolescence, it, it can be quite difficult for parents to tease out uh, whether or not this is just normal adolescent rebelliousness and change in behaviour with their, I guess, their adolescent experience and, and mm -hmm. rebelliousness or whether this is actually an insidious onset of a, of a disorder. The other issue is that because there isn't a great deal of information uh, in the public domain that's accessible to people or that people tend to access about mm -hmm. schizophrenia, it's usually not until a person's progressed to experiencing hallucinations or quite marked change in the behaviour that uh, parents actually become concerned. How common is it in the community? About one in a hundred people uh, will develop schizophrenia. So there's a, a lot of people in actual fact in trouble, shall we say, with, with schizophrenia? Yes, Dr. Cohen, could this happen to anyone? Could schizophrenia happen to anyone who doesn't have a history of drugs? And up until the event of the episode, can it happen to anyone? Or do they have a predisposed towards some form of, of mental illness? We don't 
completely understand the genetic basis for schizophrenia. And as such, uh, we'd say to people, if they have a family history of schizophrenia, that they should absolutely stay away from illicit substances. But we also know that there are de novo cases of schizophrenia. In other words, people with no clear family history of the disorder but we can look into their developmental history and there are a range of risk factors that help us uh, in terms of our uh, diagnostic uh, considerations when looking at people who present with hallucinations. For example, um, perinatal trauma or trauma in utero are known risk factors for schizophrenia and so we'll look for these sorts of risk factors uh, when uh, meeting somebody for the first time who presents with psychotic mm. symptoms. As early back as that? Yes. That's amazing. If someone fronts up at a hospital like the James Fletcher, how quickly can they be treated and how effective is that first step treatment? Well, anyone presenting to the hospital will be assessed, first of all, by an experienced nurse clinician and then by a psychiatry registrar. And uh, the management team will work together with the patient, patient to try and put together a plan that will address their signs and symptoms, preferably with treatment in the community. In terms of uh, placement in hospital or admission to hospital, uh, we generally try and keep people out of hospital um, because any young adolescent or any person uh, who develops uh, an illness would prefer to be treated in their home context. Mm. Of course, one can't guarantee that uh, prescribing an, an antipsychotic medication uh, will ameliorate the symptoms and so people need careful uh, follow-up mm. in the community. How successful is the rehabilitation treatment? About a third of people will respond really well to medication. Uh, another third will have uh, a variable response to medication, and that might be because their compliance with medication might not be so good, or they're using substances, or there are stresses in their life that um, aren't helping in terms of their recovery. And approximately a third of patients will go on to develop a, a chronic remitting and relapsing course. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols, and I'm talking today with Dr. Martin Cohen. He's a staff specialist at the James Fletcher Hospital and a conjoint lecturer at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Cohen, I understand it's been suggested that cannabis should be legalised and that when it's sold, it should be in packets with the same sort of warnings as on cigarette packets. What do you think about this? As a researcher, I'll take a, a non-political line with regards to this question. My concern is that adolescents use cannabis and there is now good evidence to suggest that cannabis use actually affects brain development and is associated with an increased risk of developing psychotic disorders, anxiety disorders and depression. As a consequence of that, I think that legalising uh, cannabis is a, a complex issue, um, in particular because... I feel that there's actually no good way to prevent young people from uh, being exposed to the drug, whether it's legalised or not. I'll give you a statistic. Mm. Approximately 25% of uh, adolescents around about the age of 12 have, have tried cannabis, and this is a worrying statistic. We also know that the earlier people start using cannabis, the greater their risk of developing mental health problems, and also the greater the risk that they'll be using cannabis later on in life by the time they're 30 or into their mid-30s. Does the use of cannabis continue, um, provided you take all things on a level basis, that it doesn't put them into a mental home or, or whatever? Do people go on using it 
into late life? Well, traditionally, uh, the peak age uh, for use was around about 16 and then declined into the mid-20s, and a very small proportion of people were using in their early 30s. But recent data is actually suggesting that people are using cannabis into their late 30s and early 40s, so the actual rates of use are, are changing. What happens when they get to 40? Do they sort of gradually taper off and give it away altogether? Or has it caught up with them by then? Well, the current evidence is suggesting that people are continuing to use in their 40s as well. And I guess this is concern because we know that the TARS and other noxious compounds in smoked cannabis actually affect the vascular system, they affect heart function, they affect the endocrine system. And as a consequence, people who continue to use are exposing themselves to a range of uh, chronic disease processes that uh, perhaps we haven't seen in the past because people are actually stopping uh, fairly early on in life. Do you think that people do take heed of warnings for example, those that are on cigarette packets and we see advertising on the television about not smoking nicotine, do you think that people do take notice of what they're hearing now about the use of cannabis? It seems that the uh, anti-smoking campaign is actually being effective and I think it's a concerted effort by Commonwealth and state governments that actually um, is starting to make headway in terms of reducing rates of smoking uh, cigarettes. I think with regards to cannabis... Um, there are a range of initiatives that I understand uh, will be coming out over the next two years, in, including public health campaigns, which should have some impact uh, on uh, the public's behaviour. Mm. I think the main issue, though, is that the brain and brain function is such an intangible thing. And more recently, certainly the work that our group is doing and some international groups uh, are doing is actually being able to produce some pictures which show that cannabis use actually changes brain function. And this might be something that uh, governments can use uh, to actually demonstrate to the general population that cannabis use is changing the way their brain is functioning. I guess it's, it was not until you actually had pictures. Uh, I think the current one is the person who has cancer of the mouth and um, signs of gangrene. Until you get pictures like that, a lot of the community doesn't take any notice. They, they can't perceive what's happening within a lung. So if you can get some pictures of what's happening, do you think that the publicity for not smoking will go ahead a lot quicker? Well, I'd, I'd hope so, because uh, I think through uh, communication media like uh, pictures, people are more able to understand the risks associated with cannabis use as they are beginning to understand the risks associated with cigarette use. The difficult with, uh, difficulty with adolescents is they're, they're immortal. Um, mm. And in terms of planning their future, and, and in particular how they'll be in terms of their health in their 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, it's a, a difficult thing to impart to them. And we know that adolescents are more impulsive uh, by virtue of the fact that uh, their brain's going through a range of changes which actually predisposes them to impulsivity and also predisposes them to addiction. Do you think that this predisposition is stronger now than it was, say, 20 years ago? I mean, we see it in, for example, in kids driving. They all seem to be in a hurry. They've got to get there fast. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, I, I can't remember that urgency of getting there. So... Has that changed over time? I haven't seen any uh, research evidence that actually talks about this issue, but uh, from my own thoughts, I'd say that the world is a busier place. 
um, and adolescents and uh, young adults are under increasing pressure to um, work harder, um, to deliver both in terms of uh, so in terms of their social environment, their work environment, their academic environment, and financially. And I think as a consequence of that, um, people are expecting quick fixes to their problems. And rather than uh, perhaps in the 50s and 60s sitting down and talking with your family, your friends, and sorting out issues, people are actually resorting to substance use to dull out uh, the angst of mm. modern life. If a parent suspects that their child is using cannabis or, for that matter, any drug, how can they go about finding out for sure? And can they do it without the child sort of feeling that mum and dad are nagging at me and I'm not going to listen? It's a very difficult issue. I think that no matter what parents say to adolescents, I think whenever a parent expresses concern, um, adolescents have a, a tendency to feel that a parent might be invading their personal space. Uh, if a parent is uh, concerned that their son or daughter is using a substance, um, I think think about, first of all, getting information. Speak to your GP, find out about what the symptoms and signs might be. Uh, I'd also suggest to parents that they work on their relationship with their teenager and in a non-confrontational uh, manner provide some information rather than accusation so that they can work together to address the issues. For people like yourself, where do you think your research is going at the present time? Okay. Well, at the moment, we're wrapping up a three-year National Health and Medical Research Council study looking at the effects of cannabis use on brain function and brain structure. Um, we should be finished recruitment by June, July this year, and we'll be looking to analyse our data and, and actually produce some of the first evidence um, linking cannabis use and functional brain changes and perhaps um, structural brain changes. We haven't done that analysis yet, yet. but also to work with an array of researchers in looking at what we can do clinically to modify people's behaviour um, so that we can help people in particular who are vulnerable or have a history of mental illness abstain from use. Is Australia the only country that's doing this? No. There are several countries um, around the world. America's very active. Europe is very active in looking at the effects of substance use and its relationship to mental health problems and also looking at the array of psychological therapies as well as drug therapies that might help people manage their addictions. Do you sort of swap notes with them at the end of each research time so that you can pick up ideas from one another? Well... We work collaboratively uh, in our present study with researchers in U at UCLA and researchers in Sydney. Mm. Um, we're presenting our data at international conferences on a fairly regular basis, and we meet and collaborate with uh, researchers to progress this um, area uh, as often as possible. Dr Cohen, thank you very much for coming in. If our listeners would uh, like some further information about either the use of cannabis or about schizophrenia, is there areas on the website that they can pick up? Yes, there are several organisations that um, they can contact. Uh, there's NISAD, which is the Neuroscience Institute of Schizophrenia and Allied Disorders, um, www.nisad.org.au, where they can find out information about schizophrenia research and information about uh, substances uh, and schizophrenia. There's also the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre website, which I think is www.ndark.org.au, but people uh, can also contact their GPs. They'll have um, resource packs um, and a wealth of information that they can uh, rely on. Thank you very much for coming in, Dr Cohen.
I've been talking today with Dr. Martin Cohen, researcher for the Hunter Medical Research Institute, staff specialist at the James Fletcher Hospital in Newcastle, and a conjoint lecturer at the University of Newcastle. This is Iris Nichols on behalf of all of the team, wishing you well.